Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you for this weekend. I'm grateful to have this opportunity. About 30 years ago, I wrote a workbook on family life and used to do a lot of weekend studies and gospel meetings on family life, but haven't been called on to do that for a while, so I had to pull out some old notes and uh, review some things in my mind, and we had a virtual Bible study last night in which we talked about a lot of these things, and so uh, you bear with me now if I make a few mistakes in presenting this material, but uh, I, I don't think there's anything any more needed uh, than the study of family life today, and uh, that will come out in the course of our studies this weekend some of the issues that we're having to deal with as a nation and as a people that do indeed concern family life and are involved in our family lives. And so uh, we'll be talking about those things as as we go along. But thank you so much for the invitation to be here. And uh, all of you who have come out to, to worship with us and study with us tonight, uh, dear Beaver family from, uh, I say from Kirkwood, because that's where I first met them, and... Uh, uh, just uh, their, their family and, and our parts of their family are here tonight, and uh, Tim led us in our opening prayer. Uh, Tim's been dealing with cancer over the past year or so, and uh, we've had him on our mind, and we've been praying for him a lot, and uh, the Lord's been good to him, and uh, he's a good man and a faithful servant in the kingdom, and glad to have him and some of his family here this evening, and uh, it's good to be back with you all. We did a thing here that probably wasn't the most popular study that's ever been done in this building, but uh, last time I was here we talked about church history, and uh, that's not always an interesting subject for a lot of people, uh, but I enjoy it and uh, enjoyed being with you at that time, and it's good to be back again, and we're going to talk then uh, tonight, tomorrow night, and three lessons on Sunday, I'll be talking about family life. We're going to talk this evening about the design of marriage, and then tomorrow night I want to talk to the husbands. Uh, Sunday morning during the Bible class hour, I'd like to talk to the wives or the women, and then I'd like to talk to the husbands and wives as parents uh, at the worship hour, and then finally uh, on Sunday afternoon we'll talk about the permanency uh, of marriage and talk about uh, this problem of divorce that is so common nowadays, and so that'll be sort of an outline of the things that we'll be talking about uh, during this series of studies. But tonight... I want to talk to you about the design of marriage. And as we talk about the design of marriage, I want us to recognize that we're living at a time when this theory of evolution uh, is viewed as a scientific fact. And uh, many of our children are being exposed to the idea that we are just the product of matter. And if that's the case, of course, we have no eternal soul or spirit. Uh, we're just a breathing, thinking body of flesh. And it really doesn't matter a whole lot what we do with our lives. Whatever makes us happy, whatever we enjoy doing, uh, then as the humanist would say, just go ahead and do it. Do your thing, because uh, in just a few short years, uh, if you're fortunate, you might make it to, to 80. The Lord said uh, uh, three score and ten, and by reason of strength, you might make it. Uh, four score, and if he gives me about six or seven more months, I'll make it to four score, but uh, that's going to be about it. And so you might as well just live it up, you might as well just enjoy yourselves, uh, if that's the case. But as we enter into these studies, we're going to begin our study with uh, 
the premises, and I want to lay those down, that there is a God. And that uh, this world that we see in our own bodies are a creation of God. And that we have been created in the image and in the likeness of God. And so our first premise is that God is, that He exists, and that He created us in His own image and in His own likeness. And since we're a product of God, we need to listen to what God has to say about our lives and about our marriages. We're also, of course, teaching the premise, as we do, that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, that He is God who came in the flesh, and having dwelt in the flesh and offered His blood as a redemptive price for our sins, and gone back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God to reign, and that He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that He sent forth the Holy Spirit, which introduces our third premise, and that is that the Bible is the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit came forth unto apostles and prophets and revealed unto them the mind of God. And in revealing the mind of God, they wrote down. They wrote down what God thinks about whatever we need to know in order to live our lives here on earth. And in that revelation, as we've already indicated to you, it clearly teaches that we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And I would stress to you that God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, Jesus said Himself. And I would point out to you also in Luke 24, verse 39, after the resurrection when Jesus made an appearance to the apostles, they thought He was a spirit. And He made the statement, Does a spirit have flesh and bones as you see me having? Reach over here, handle me. Touch me. So God as a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as Jesus is saying there in Luke 24. So your flesh and bone is not made in the image of God, because He has no flesh and bones. What's made in the image of God is your spirit, is your soul. And Jesus talks in Matthew 10, verse 28, about a soul that we have that a man cannot destroy. Oh, Jesus said a man can kill your body, he can kill your body and the spirit will depart, but there's a soul and a spirit and a life that leaves that body that continues to live, continues to exist. And no man can destroy that. God can, of course, destroy it in hell. God can cast it out eternally. And so as we begin this study, I want us to understand who we are. David raised that question in Psalm 8. He looked into the heavens and he saw the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, he looked all around him and saw the animals and noticed that man is in charge of all these animals. And so he raised the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? God, why have you done special things for man? Why did you make a promise to Abraham that all men in him and through his seed would have all spiritual blessings. Why did you open up the Red Sea for the Israelites to be delivered? Why did you cause the walls of Jericho to fall down so that the Israelites could conquer the land and cause the sun to stand still? Why are you doing all these things for man? You don't do it for the peach tree. Uh, you don't do it for the sheep in the field. What is so special about man that you've done these things for him? 
Now, we can go beyond the time of David, and we can ask ourselves the question, well, why did you send God down here to dwell in the flesh, Jesus? Why did you send down Him to die for man? You didn't do it again for the peach tree. You didn't do it for the sheep and the fish. You did it for man. What is there that's so special about man? And again, it comes back to the very nature of our being. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And we're responsible, therefore, to God and not to the lust of our flesh. Well, we're responsible to the lust of our flesh, certainly, but, but we are responsible to be obedient to God and not to the lust of the flesh. And so as we talk about marriage, we're going to be talking about a subject that is vital and important because it can cause you to lose your soul in hell if you don't follow the instructions and the wisdom of God with regard to your relationship to your wife or to your husband or to your children. And so let us then, as we begin our study together, uh, let us talk first of all about the design of marriage in our study tonight. As we talk about the design of marriage, let's first of all talk about the constituents of marriage. Uh, who can be involved in a marriage relationship? It was Jesus in Matthew the 19th chapter who went back to the beginning and referred to some things that are described in Genesis the second chapter beginning with verse 18. And it was there that Jesus said that God made them male and female. And he said to the male and the female that the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you think about that, first of all, male and female, God made them. That eliminates a homosexual marriage. That eliminates a woman being married to a woman or a man being married to a man. And regardless of what our society says, and regardless of what laws they pass, in the beginning, when God designed marriage, He designed it for a male and a female. And when you stop and think about a man having a relationship with another man or a woman with another woman, it is quite clear that, as Paul said in Romans 1, that's a vile passion which is contrary to nature. And without even a revelation from God, we ought to see and understand that God, that male and female are designed for one another and not a male for a male and a female for a female. It's just, as Paul said, unnatural and is a very vile passion. And so let us understand then that marriage is for a male and a female. Secondly, Jesus said the two shall become one flesh. Now, I don't know when it's going to happen, or maybe it is already happening. But if our government is going to allow a man to be married to a man, then how are they going to oppose a man being married to two women? Or how are they going to oppose a woman being married to two men? It would seem to me that bigamy and even polygamy would follow. But yet, the design of marriage is for the two, Jesus said, to become one flesh. Not three, not four, not five, but the two, Jesus said, shall become one flesh. And of course, when he talks about them becoming one flesh, he is simply referring, as Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 6, the union of a male and a female together as one flesh or as one body. 
to join their bodies together. We're going to talk further about that in just a moment. But that's what Jesus is saying that God taught and that God designed from the beginning. He designed that a male and a female, a heterosexual marriage, God designed it that way. And He designed for only one male and one female to be married or to be joined together as one flesh. And therefore, bigamy, polygamy, all of that is a limit. That is God's design. Now again, if we are the people of God, and if we recognize that God is, that Jesus is His Son, and that the Bible is the Word of God, then we have to respect this in marriage. That is God's design, and that is what we must accept. Now, following on that, as we talk about the design of marriage, let's go back, as Jesus does here in Matthew, the 19th chapter, and see the design of marriage as it progressed between Adam and then later his wife Eve. First of all, God saw that it wasn't good for a man to be alone. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the lesson. But he saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And he saw that what existed in animals would not fulfill the deepest needs of a man. And so he decided that man needed a companion. And so God, out of the sight of a man, created a woman and gave her to the man. And more on what is behind all of that in just a moment. But notice, as God designed the marriage relationship, He says, first of all, let a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two then can become one flesh. So think for a moment about the conditions of marriage. It's a constituents, a male and a female, but now think with me about the conditions of the marriage. First of all, a man must leave his father and his mother. The word leave, as Jesus uses it in the Greek language in Matthew 19, is not just leave. It is a strong form of the word leave, with a preposition on the front of it that strengthens that word, and it literally means to abandon your father and mother. Now that sounds rather harsh, I understand that. But there's a reason for that. James Hahn and Greg, I think, just maybe preached a meeting where James Hahn preaches, but James has adopted some children through the years. And he adopted a child out of Ohio several years ago. And they were going into the judge's office to sign all the papers and so forth, and James was just making conversation with this judge. And he said, I, I know that you preside over a lot of uh, divorces. And he said, yes, I do. James said, I'm just kind of curious, in, in your divorce court, what is the greatest cause of divorce? What, what do you run into the most? With no hesitation at all, he said, in-laws. And when James told me that story, I was a little bit shocked. I would have thought of several other things besides that. But it does show you 
what Jesus and what God is talking about when they tell us we have to leave our father and mother. If you're going to enter into a relationship with a woman or with a man, don't let your parents interfere in that relationship. Don't let your mother or your father inject themselves into the relationship that you're having with your husband or wife. And so it seems to me that that's why Jesus used that strong term. He's not just saying move out of the house where your father and mother live. He's saying you abandon the authority and the relationship that you have as their son or as their daughter. They don't tell you what to do anymore. They do not control your life. And when they do, as this judge would tell you, if you're not very careful, it will bring about a divorce. And so the first element of the condition of marriage is that you have to leave, abandon your family relationship, and begin your own relationship, and your parents must not interfere and take control of your life any longer. Secondly, he says you've got to cleave unto your wife. I don't know much about Hebrew. I've been told that it means the same in Hebrew, but I do know in the Greek language that that word cleave means to stick together like glue. Another way of saying that when you leave your father and mother, then you bind yourself. You bind yourself. You tie yourself to your wife or to your husband. I was looking in the analytical lexicon one time on this word, and one of them that I looked up says it means welded together. But whether you say stick together like glue or whether you say welded together, you get the point. The point is that the conditions of marriage not only mean you abandon your former family relationship, your mother and father and their authority, but that you stick together and be welded together to your husband and to your wife, stick together like glue. And that, of course, we understand from, say, Romans 7, 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, that a woman is bound to her husband. And that's a different word there, tied to him. A woman is bound to her husband so long as he lives. As long as you live. You stick to your husband. You stick to your wife. You be welded and tied together to them. Stick together like glue. That's the second element of the marriage relationship. And we need to understand, and and we need to be teaching our children this as they grow up, that there is no escape hatch in marriage. You're married as long as your husband or as your wife lives. And this idea, which is kind of common with some folks, and I've even heard the expression, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. Well, you may be able to get a divorce legally, but in the eyes of God, you are bound together until death do you part. Now, we're aware of the exception that Jesus gives. When somebody violates this one flesh relationship, which we'll talk about next, 
But you understand that unless there is a breaking of that one flesh relationship, there is no reason, no escape hatch as we said, no way of severing this relationship. You're bound and tied together. We must stick together like glue. And then he says, leave your father and mother, abandon that relationship, cleave to, stick to your mate. Now, when you make those commitments, when you make the commitment that I'm severing my relationship with my mother and father as a family to start my own, and I make the commitment to cleave to you and to stick to you until death do we part, once you make those commitments, now he says... You may become one flesh. You may unite your bodies together. And the one flesh relationship Paul describes in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter, verse 16, as the union of the bodies. Uh, even if a man, as Paul is talking about there in, in that chapter, about fornication. And if a man joins himself to a harlot, the two become one flesh. Now that doesn't mean they're married. But that simply defines what God is talking about when he says leave, cleave, and become one flesh. That means that there is the union of your bodies together as husband and wife. And you're familiar with Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and, and verse 4, where Paul says that marriage is honorable. And then he adds, and the bed is undefiled. But... Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge and will condemn. So we understand then that if we will leave our families in which we were reared, and we will promise to cleave and to stick to our mate like glue, then God grants us the blessing and the privilege of uniting our bodies together to enjoy the pleasures that God has provided in the flesh for that relationship. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 7 and makes the point that in Paul's way of thinking, it's good not to marry. And you know, understand Paul's point of view on that, that he is just saying, uh, there's some difficult times he describes later in chapter 7. And he says in those situations you're going to be better off if you don't have a husband or wife. And Paul himself was able to devote his life so fully and completely to serving the Lord that being without marriage was a good thing. But he says to avoid fornication, if you have that desire in your body to unite yourself to a, a woman out here, then he says, you need to get married. Don't do that without promising to leave your father and mother and promising to cleave to your wife, making those commitments, making those vows. He said, don't do that unless you're willing to make the commitment. And so rather than commit fornication, then have a wife or have a husband. And he goes ahead to describe how a wife is indebted he calls it a debt. You know, you have to make your house payment. Uh, and and in, in your marriage relationship, there, there are indebtedness there in that relationship uh, to one another. And don't, he says, defraud one another 
of that relationship. Well, I have more to say about that in another lesson, but, but that's what Paul is saying, is that this is legitimate in marriage to unite yourselves together uh, as one flesh. And, of course, we know that in our day and time, uh, the relationship... Uh, in, in marriages take, or the relationship, uh, of, of the bodies together is taken very lightly. Uh, I have a young girl that lives across the street from us, just bought the house across the street from us, and some fellow spends the night there quite frequently, and uh, the young people nowadays are, are, uh, thinking, well, you know, why do I have to go through all that rigmarole and take those vows and pay for that wedding dress or whatever? Uh, we love one another, but yet so often, and then probably in a very high percentage of cases, that doesn't last very long. It's just fornications, all it is. And so the conditions of marriage then simply are that we should leave our father and mother, cleave to one another, and unite our bodies as one flesh. And then, of course, we should recognize as people of God that we need to obey the laws of the land. As Paul said in Romans 13, as he taught it, Peter taught in 1 Peter 3, and certainly we need to comply with the law, uh, licensing and, and the things that are required in marriage. But that's what we're talking about in the conditions of marriage. So the constituents of marriage are one man and one woman, uh, and the two becoming one place. The conditions of marriage is to leave your father and mother, cleave to one another, and unite your bodies as one place. Let's talk now about the companionship of marriage. I think this is a very vital and very important point that I alluded to a little earlier and said we would come back to. But in Genesis, the second chapter, and verse 18, God saw that it was not good for man to dwell alone. And he looked at all of these animals. He looked at the sheep, and he looked at the goat, and he looked at the cow, and he looked at the horse, and he looked at all of the creatures that he had made. And he said, there's nothing here that's suitable for man. And so he said, I will make a help. I will make a helper for him. And he used that word meat in the older versions. I will make a help who is meat or suitable. So, since the dog and the cat and the horse and the cow are not suitable to meet the loneliness of the man, I will make somebody very special. And women, you need to perk up your ears here because you are something very special. And just because, and we're going to talk about that some too, that the husband is the head over the wife and the family, that has nothing to do with your importance and your value And we're going to talk about that in the lesson on the husband and the lesson on the wife. But here, understand that when God designed you, He made you a woman, not a man. And He made you a woman for a reason. And He made you a woman because He he developed within you something that is special that I and these other men need. You know... I lost my first wife when I was about 44 years old. Tim Beaver had got me to running. And I was in the best shape of my life. And I was working out. Tim and I were running three miles a day. And I, 
I was in the best shape of my life, and I was scared to death when my wife died. I have you. I, I, I know I prayed a thousand times the night of her death. Lord, help me not to do something stupid. And that's exactly the way I put it, because I was afraid. I was young. I considered 44 young, especially now that I'm almost 80. But I was a young man, and I was fearful of this fleshly drive that we have as young men. But you know, that was never a problem to me. You know what was my biggest problem? I had two girls that were living at home at that time. And they were my companions. But you know, on a Saturday night, those girls would go out and do stuff. They didn't sit at home with Dad. And I'm sitting there one night in my chair in the midst of those four walls. I thought I was going to climb those walls. I thought I was going to go nuts. I could not stay in that house that night. And you talk about running three miles, I must have walked five miles. I walked all over Kirkwood, Missouri that night. You know why? I was lonely. There was an empty chair sitting over there. And I couldn't tell her a good joke I'd heard that day. I couldn't ask her how her day went. And, and, and the problems maybe she had with the kids, although our kids were pretty old at that time. And what I missed, more than anything else, was companionship. I couldn't sit down and talk with her anymore about how I felt and how she was doing. Companionship, that's an aspect of the design of marriage. And God made women so that they could be companions to a man. And they could fulfill his deepest fears, feelings of loneliness, and so forth. And women, and we'll talk about that more too. But, but men and women have social needs. We are social people. God made us that way. And we need to be friends with one another. I ought to be the best friend of my wife, and she ought to be my best friend. And I think that's so with most of us. We need to share our time, and we need to share our thoughts together. Companionship is vital to a successful marriage. You know, Hollywood, think about Hollywood for a moment. Have you ever seen such a farce in marriages? This guy marries this handsome guy, good-looking guy. Marries this beautiful woman. They've been married about a week, and he runs off to Australia to make a movie with some other beautiful woman. She stays there in Hollywood and makes a movie with some handsome man. Well, he's down there with another woman, visiting, having companionship with her, and she's having... And what happens? The marriage falls apart. Why? There's no companionship. They're not together. He's off one place and she's off another. They may get back together for a few months and then he's off again and she's off again. And it's a farce when men and women are not companions of one another in this relationship. And God designed it to be that way. An absence 
will starve the friendship and the social bond that needs to exist between a husband and wife. And there are times when you have young children that you've got to make some time for your husband and make some time uh, for your wife. Companionship is also an element of the design of marriage. And then finally, the design of marriage includes the relationship itself. The relationship of a husband and a wife. Paul talks about that in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and he said, Husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he said, Wives, be in subjection to your husband, and fear and esteem them as you would God. Now think about that for just a moment. In any business relationship, whether it's government, uh, whether it's private business, you've got to have leadership. How many businesses are going to be able to function for a very long period of time with, without somebody taking charge? Without somebody being ahead to, to direct the, the relationship or the business. And so he is saying in the business of marriage, husbands, you're to be the head. You're to take charge of this relationship. And wives, you're to be in subjection to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, it doesn't stop there, husbands. And again, we want to talk about this tomorrow night in some depth. But, but husbands, he goes ahead to say, love your wives. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for the church. And that's what this agape love, which we'll go into some detail tomorrow night, that's what this agape love will do in the heart of a husband toward his wife. He will give himself up for her. And he goes ahead to say, husbands love their own bodies, and in loving their own bodies they nourish and they cherish their own bodies. And so therefore, husbands, you have to nourish and cherish your wives. And what we're going to find out in our study tomorrow night is that before the husband can be the head of the wife, and before he can direct this relationship, before that can ever occur, he has to love her. And this is agape love. This is not an eros, lust type of a love, which is fine for a husband to have for his wife. This is not a philos, philos type love in which uh, she's his friend. This is an agape love in which he devotes himself and gives himself up. He approaches this relationship to his wife unselfishly. And again, I want to tomorrow night talk to the husbands. And I want to talk in some detail about this, this love that we're talking about, but you need to understand when God designed marriage, He designed for you to take charge but he designed as you take charge that you love your wife the way you love yourself. The way you provide for your own needs, you provide for her needs. And you nourish and you cherish her as you do 
your own self. And that will compel, that will compel your wife to be in subjection to you. When she knows that you love her like you love yourself, when she knows that you put her ahead of yourself, she's not going to have any problem being in subjection to you. But that's just not the way it has always worked in marriage relationships. Husbands will often let the wife know, listen, God put me in charge, and I'll run this relationship, and I'll tell you what to do, and you just sit down and shut up. Now, I know guys don't talk to the wives like that, but they might leave that impression sometime. But wives, you be in subjection to your husband. And that's not a comment on your intelligence. That's not a comment on your ability. The fact that you're in subjection to your husband doesn't mean that you're not a better Bible student than he is. Or that you don't have better judgment than he has. And I know in a lot of cases, especially Bible knowledge, maybe majority of cases, that women are better Bible students than their husbands. Somebody asked me about that down at Coleman this week. I said, why? why? Why are the women better Bible students than the men? And I said, well, I don't know if I got an answer to that, but I agree with you. That they devote themselves, it seems to me. I, I When I first started preaching, very first gospel meeting I preached. Back then we had long meetings. I started on a Monday night and went through two Sundays. Needed 16 sermons. And I'd just been preaching two months. Took every bit of knowledge I had to do that gospel meeting. <laughs> but the, it was in my home congregation. Old Sister Winters. Her husband was a good Bible student too, so I can't say that about, about her and him. But there were different times during those two weeks that I was there that she would come up and make some important comment to me. I mean, it wasn't always about Bible knowledge. It was just she was listening, and she was trying to help this young preacher out. That's the first time I knew that it's not propitiation, it's propitiation. And she, she told me that. I looked it up, and she was right. It's propitiation. It's not propitiation. And, but more important things than that, but, but the point I'm saying is she was a great Bible student as well as her husband. And and she would have made a great leader of the family if God had given her that charge. And so don't view subjection as being unequal and lower than your husband. It doesn't mean that at all. It's a role, R-O-L-E. It's a relationship. Somebody has to lead, and God said the husband do it out of love. And then the others have to follow, and so the wife, as she is loved by her husband, follows his leadership along with the children. And he takes charge of this relationship. But it has to begin with the husband loving his wife and, as well, his children, as he does his own body. And husbands, if you do that, 
You can be the head of your wife and your family. You can take charge of your relationship. And you won't find your wife following along, kicking and screaming. She'll know that you have her good and the children's good in your heart. And she'll submit to you and she'll assist you and she'll help you and she'll understand your goals and help you fulfill them with the children and and with the marriage in general. Husbands, we've got to take charge. And we'll talk to you about that tomorrow night. Talk to you about taking charge and and being the leader in, in your family. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit this evening about these elements uh, of, of the marriage relationship uh, to just, in a general way, get before our minds what God designed in this relationship. And in this relationship, He, of course, designed the constituents of marriage, a male and a female. The two shall become one flesh. He designed the conditions of this marriage, this relationship that you leave your father and mother, you cleave unto one another, you join your bodies together in one flesh. He talks about the companionship, sharing your time with one another, fulfilling the emotional needs that each other has, and then, of course, talked about the relationship. That'll get us started, and we're going to expand on all of these things. As I said, tomorrow night we'll talk to the husbands. Sunday morning Bible class we'll talk to the wives. And then we'll talk to the fathers and mothers about training up the child at the worship hour uh, in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we'll conclude our study by talking about the permanency of marriage, that there is no escape hatch, uh, that we marry until death do we part. So that'll get us started this evening. It should be someone here tonight. I know we haven't talked uh, at all uh, to any degree about becoming a Christian but we have alluded to the fact that Jesus Christ loved us. And we've talked about the fact that He loved us so much that He gave Himself up for us. And when you think about Jesus being scourged and beaten half to death, beaten bloody, and then nailed to a cross, and left there to hang and to die, and all of that suffering, Jesus gave Himself up for you. He died to redeem you of your sin. And if you've never confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you've never openly and acknowledged your, your, your sinfulness and repented and, 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 and made up your mind that you're going to forsake those sins, and then if you've never been buried with Him in baptism, just like Jesus died and was buried... You die to sin, and you're buried, and then you're raised to walk in newness of life. You haven't done that, you're yet in your sins. And you haven't been joined to the body of Christ as the bride of Christ. And you need to do that, because only his bride is going to live with Jesus. He's going to take his bride home someday to live with him forever. And if you're not a part of that body... You'll never be united with Jesus as one for eternity. And if you, as a part of that bride, have been unfaithful to your Lord, you need to repent, you need to be restored to Him, and you need to acknowledge whatever your sin is. You need to turn from it in repentance. You need to pray to God as a child would pray to his father and ask God to forgive you. Are you subject at all tonight? To be forgiven, if you are, we urge you to come while we stand and sing the songs been selected.